hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. Well, this last week was a big week in the U.S. Senate. Multiple hearings, witnesses called regarding SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 origins and responses, and the senators were all over the place. Sharper questions from Senator Rand Paul, but still not probing enough or on target. And then listen to this from Senator Bernie Sanders. Very early on, agreed to be here voluntarily, and I appreciate that uh, very much. Uh, I also want to take this opportunity so there is no confusion to congratulate Moderna, Pfizer, other companies, and the great scientists at the National Institute of Health and other federal agencies for their extraordinary work in rapidly producing COVID vaccines that have saved millions of lives. We should be grateful to all those in government and in the private sector who work so hard uh, to save lives. The NIH and other federal agencies work with Moderna to research, develop, and distribute the COVID vaccine that so many of our people have effectively used. Uh, You can tell by that statement that Bernie Sanders almost was reading a script given to him by someone in the biopharmaceutical complex, whether it be the NIH, the uh, CDC, FDA, the National Security Administration, or Pfizer and Moderna, one of the manufacturers. But it was clear. He said, let me be clear. Well, who was he trying to be clear with? Uh, This is astonishing. It's basically a front. It's a fronting of false assertions. He is falsely asserting that the vaccines save lives. There there are no prospective, double-blind, randomized placebo-controlled trials ever with COVID-19 vaccines that have shown a reduction in mortality. They have not saved lives. There are no valid observational data that suggests that vaccines have saved lives. And then he just comes out and fronts this. Uh, you can imagine that um, that Moderna CEO Stefan Bainzel did not even face a single probing or hard question whatsoever. Uh, Senator Rand Paul asked him about myocarditis, and then astonishingly, Rand Paul handed Benzel a suggestion that maybe myocarditis could be lessened in young people if they just took one shot instead of two shots, so they get a little bit of myocarditis instead of fulminant fatal myocarditis. Uh, The Senate couldn't be uh, worse in terms of falling flat on their 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 faces with respect to approaching uh, these witnesses. So for specifically for Senator Rand Paul, who's a doctor uh, who really should understand this, I was uh, more critical even that of Bernie Sanders, who's not a doctor. It's very difficult for um, for people who are not physicians to really have the alacrity to move uh, between these sources of data. 
But Stefan Bainzel, the CEO of Moderna in 2006, turns out he was a sales director, basically like a pharmaceutical rep director for Eli Lilly in Belgium. And he got directed to, uh, to become uh, head of operations there, and Belgium's a small country. And then shockingly in 2007, he catapults to become the CEO of French in vitro diagnostics company BioMariu. Benzel doesn't have any expertise in in vitro diagnostics. And then very quickly after that, he began work with the Chinese by contract to help the Chinese build the biosecurity annex level four in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. This is all standard Google-based information that's widely available on the internet. Baomaryu, his company, trained the Chinese lab technicians to begin to work with these dangerous biological agents. Uh, Bainzel then, in 2011, jumps to start up Moderna. After being a CEO of a relatively big in vitro diagnostics company, he joins a one-person company in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Moderna. Moderna, from 2011 to 2016, has three patents covering the foundational intellectual property of messenger RNA, this coding to SARS-CoV-2 and the spike protein. And then in April of 2020, Moderna's stock and stock price skyrockets on the promise of a COVID-19 vaccine. Banzel's stake in the company's 9%. His estimated net worth is over $6 billion. What a stunning story. And there, Banzel is struggling with his French accent uh, in front of the Senate. And while Rand Paul uh, is looking like he's asking tough questions, these are five things that Rand Paul either did not have the fundamental knowledge and understanding himself, he wasn't perceptive enough, or he didn't have the courage to ask Bainzel these questions. Number one, what was Bainzel's involvement with the Chinese in the construction of the lab? Was the lab intended for bioterrorism? How many times did Bainzel visit the lab between 2007 and 2020? Did Moderna collaborate with or rely upon Ralph Barrick's NIH work on the chimeric SARS-CoV-2 as published in 2015 in Nature Medicine and proceeds the National Academy of Sciences. Is the patented genetic code for the Moderna RNA derived from Barrick's chimeric virus, or was it another one originating from the, the Wuhan lab? Number three, did Bainzel know ahead of time that his product would cause myocarditis, neurologic injury, blood clotting, and immunologic syndromes like VITT and MIS? Number four, how many deaths and serious adverse events did Moderna record in its 90-day obligatory post-release safety data? All the companies have to create data uh, and collect data for 90 days after release of their product. And why has this dossier not been released to the public? When will it be released? Assuming Moderna's dossier has similar numbers uh, of fatalities to Pfizer, why did Moderna fail to pull their product off the market early in 2021 due to an excess risk of death? And finally, number five, has Moderna or the FDA or any third party at any time inspected their mRNA-1273 vaccine product or their bivalent product for quality, purity, and concentration as it's being produced by biodefense contractor National Resilience? National Resilience is the defense contractor, uh, largely their factories in Mississauga, Ontario, uh, uh, where they're producing the Moderna vaccine. How does Moderna assure the quantity of messenger RNA in the final fill and finish of the vials 
before they are shipped to pharmacies and vaccine centers? These would be five questions that could get farther along to finding out whether or not Banzel and Moderna clearly have uh, been um, committing corruption, racketeering, fraud, conspiracy to commit domestic terrorism, public harm, or mass negligent homicide. Why have Senate hearings if they can't ask tough, important questions? Uh, you know, I concluded, and I had some communications with the Senate this last week, get some experts in there. If these doctors don't know how to ask questions, I do, and I know people in my circles and your circles do as well, and we're happy to step forward and start to get this on the right track. Boy, do we need information, and we need to move America and the world closer to justice in this really tragedy that we've had. Now, the um, the House Select Committee on Coronavirus Origins did make sufficient progress, and uh, this last week, President Biden did sign uh, the a ruling that would now release or declassify the documents regarding the Wuhan lab. Remember, just a few weeks ago, the narrative was that there is no uh, lab origin of the virus. Now, suddenly, the United States has a dossier of documents regarding what was going on in that laboratory. I'd want to know uh, who was in and out of that laboratory from its construction 2011 all the way up through 2020. And uh, in terms of U.S. officials, uh, those elsewhere around the world, I'd want to know why, for instance, why was Angela Merkel from Germany in Wuhan in the fall of 2019? Why did CDC Director uh, Redfield say that SARS-CoV-2 came out of that lab in around September of 2019? And why did he keep it quiet until 2023? And lastly, I'd want to match up the list of co-conspirators in the Wuhan lab operations for SARS-CoV-2 with those that go to Davos every year at the World Economic Forum meetings where probably a lot of the planning for this pandemic occurs. And then finally, uh, I'd want the direct relationship between Wuhan operations and Event 201, that final pandemic preparedness planning meeting that happened in the United States. But the Chinese CDC director is there, Anthony Fauci, uh, current White House uh, coronavirus coordinator, Ashish Jha. And was Event 201 really just a prescient planning tabletop exercise or was it the real deal? Were they actually planning operations for a virus that had already gotten out of the lab? Uh, we have so much to cover. Uh, you can imagine this has been uh, just a whirlwind in the last few weeks. We take time out on this episode of the McCullough Report and spend time with a wonderful doctor. And I want you to hear his story, Dr. John Littell. John Littell is a family physician. He's a military officer. He's a man of great honor, a man of um, an enormous uh, bedrock of faith, wonderful family. He's in family practice with his daughter, who's recently graduated, trained a physician. You know, I've been to Dr. Littell's house. I know his wife. I know his daughter. He's an excellent physician who cared for patients, inpatients, and outpatients. Uh, who had acute COVID-19, now fielding those with vaccine injuries. And boy, does he have a story to tell in terms of being hunted and now absolutely assaulted by the American Board of Family Medicine. You have to hear it all. It's going to be on the backside 
of the McCullough Report. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. The wellness company shares your values and fights for medical freedom. They put patients before profits and follow medical science, not political science like doctors on the left. Their chief medical board, which includes Dr. Peter McCullough, are the makers of the incredible American-made high-quality spike formula. If you worry about spike proteins, go to twc.health and use promo code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount. Once again, that's twc.health, promo code OUTLOUD. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on all the fear-mongering, but deep down you try and minimize viral exposure and your risk of getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a pulvinone iodine nasal solution. I don't need to tell you just how powerful a nasal cleansing formula with xylitol, pulvinone iodine, and vitamin D3 for immune support could be. In fact, my attorney told me not to tell you. Google it and find out for yourself. Now, get yourself a bottle of American-made Cofix RX nasal solution. Let's get out and live again. CofixRx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com. Use coupon code out loud and get 20% off. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's an honor and I think a really serious moment that on the program, I've invited Dr. John Littell from Ocala, Florida to join us for a late-breaking exclusive interview on a development that he has had with the American Board of Family Medicine. Dr. Littell, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you, Peter. This has been such an amazing uh, week for me, and I'm really glad you thought to call me Dr. McCullough. This is great. Thank you. John, let's start out by having you just give a brief brief introduction in terms of your college and medical school and residency background. Sure thing. Yeah, I'm really. I always say I was honored to be able to uh, go to Cornell, and uh, and then I got a chance to uh, go to Columbia for a little while for graduate studies in New York City, and then of course uh, George Washington University. Uh, and as I've said to folks, you know, in order to pay for that, uh, I was thankful enough to be able to get accepted to the Army for military scholarships. So I spent seven years serving in the Army Medical Corps after George Washington, and I got to teach residents most of that time, which I tell people that gave me an extra uh, extra uh, advantage in a sense, because, you know, as you know, you know, you do the four years of medical school and then your three years of residency, then to be able to teach for another four years and every day learn more stuff and teach it. I always feel like I got got an incredible education at the places I was uh, in each every step of the way, all the way through the military. And then even after that, when I served with the National Health Service Corps in Montana, for a year uh, and then thankfully came to Florida eventually and worked with some of the best doctors in Florida in the Orlando area. I always had amazing mentors, uh, Peter. I mean, there's a great thing about medicine. That's why I love teaching medical students. And, and uh, of course, this latest development uh, was uh, somewhat frightening to me that I would not be able to teach medical students because of this uh, board well, certification thing. Be- yeah. Before we get to that and the, the recent... Um, sets of actions that happened. Uh, can you give us an idea of your scope of practice in the last few years uh, uh, through the course of the pandemic in terms of inpatient, outpatient, and what you were, you know, what, what were you doing in terms of clinical practice? Yes, yeah, pretty much I've always been a full spectrum 
kind of a family doctor taking care of newborn all the way through nursing homes. And so, and, and pretty much committed as, as I was trained to, to take care of patients when they were at their sickest. I mean, all of us doctors want to do that, right? That's our, our vocation. So, so I have kept my, especially in the heart of COVID, I, I had privileges at five hospitals, uh, uh, two that were in uh, the Orlando area, three up here in the Ocala area. And, um, uh, so my uh, continued emphasis was just being wherever patients needed me. Uh, so during COVID, uh, it went from quickly being just the outpatient setting. And you remember during the alpha variant, it was mostly outpatient. And then we started to get a smattering of inpatients. I was able to take care of them. Well, to the extent that I was able to take care of them, that's the problem. Um, so we had to keep them out of the hospital, which was the best part of that. And then during the Delta variant, when all heck broke loose, and you remember the many calls we had during that time, you and I, um, specifically about our frustrations trying to deal with the situation. We, I had people calling me saying, my husband, my wife, my father, my mother, my daughter uh, is in the hospital. Would you please take over their care? So I had that happening here, especially in the Ocala area, North Central Florida. And then again, um, we added at that point for the, I always resisted telehealth. I, I really just went against my grain to, to, to do medicine over the phone or a computer. But when COVID happened, none of us who knew, you know, all of us, I should say, who knew what to do to treat people, we had to rise up. And so there were hundreds and hundreds of patients that we took care of from all over the country, as you well know. So what I would typically do is work pretty much eight to six in the office, do my rounds at the hospital seven days a week, and then come home in the evenings. And also with the help of my newly minted family physician daughter, Anne, we would just get on and just do phone calls with patients uh, seven days a week. It almost felt like 24-7. Incredible dedication, and and I've learned uh, being alongside you at faculty of so many meetings of uh, your dedication to your patients and your effectiveness and in helping patients avoid hospitalization and death. Uh, but you became active in terms of some COVID summits, which were well attended, had esteemed faculty, and um, and things moved along. Uh, very well, I thought, uh, both in terms of your activity and your leadership in the field. Uh, but things culminated with a, a video that went viral. Uh, it appeared to be you at a medical executive committee meeting uh, in Florida. Can you can you give us your side of, of what that was? Well, it was basically a, uh, a public hospital, Sarasota Memorial, where they have a public elected, publicly elected uh, um, board of directors. And so they were able um, to get three of their board members uh, for the board of trustees of the hospital elected from the community who were sympathetic to the plight of those who'd lost loved ones during COVID and felt frustrated about uh, things such as the remdesivir protocols. And so this prompted an investigation. And as part of this investigation, I was invited to come down to Sarasota. And uh, and to be honest with you, I was reluctant to do it because it's quite a long drive from here in Ocala. And also I did have to cancel out a, a slate of patients, which is not fair to my patients. Uh, but uh, I felt called to do it. And I spoke up at the first meeting and that's the one that went viral because as, as really what happened is, is that after I approached the one board member, near the end of the meeting and just whispered to her that I wanted to support her and I and I hoped I could speak some more. That's when I was asked to leave the room and um, and the rest is pretty much history because it was how it was handled by the security forces that were 
enforced at a great, at an incredible level, like 15 security forces with bag checks, things that have never been done at a hospital board meeting before. And um, and that's the video that that did go viral because of the one reporter who kind of followed me out after I was escorted off the the hospital grounds or told I had to leave the hospital grounds. Um, and um, I guess the good news is that brought attention to what was going not only in Sarasota at that one hospital, but pretty much every hospital in the country, Peter. I mean, it was uh, it was a, a hard for me to go in and out of those wards day in and day out, the COVID units, the isolation of those patients and the fact that they were denied treatments that they deserved and that would have saved in many cases their lives was a, a pretty traumatic experience for me, but of course, mostly for the family members who lost loved ones. And I think we need to continue to shed light on that. Now, did you make a presentation at that meeting? I did. I made a very short two and a half minute presentation on um, trying to say exactly what I'm telling here and here now is that, you know, what what did the hospitals do that was not right? You know, where, where they went wrong with COVID and, 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 and denying treatments. And so I had about a, a very short presentation. I was kind of cut off and I couldn't get it all out. And then I sat down um, and it was about, you no, know, maybe, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes later that I got up. And I realized this thing was going to, I wasn't sure how long it was going on, but I had to get back to Ocala. So there was some, oh, you could say misrepresentation. You know, people say, was I kicked out of the meeting because I spoke about ivermectin? I, I would say no, uh, but I would say that I don't think doctors who were sympathetic to the board would have been treated in the same manner, put it that way. But did you uh, mention the, the use of ivermectin or the non-use of it as an inpatient? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was the highlight of my talk was how much, you know, when I when I had the young mom who had just given birth by C-section, who who was literally hypoxic with perioral cyanosis and uh, I mean, blue around the mouth and, and, and nobody in the OOB unit could figure out what was going on, how to treat her. And I was I, I had the opportunity to give her ivermectin from my own pocket. I I had to share that story. I had to share the story of the mayor of our town, which is public record because she thanked me in a public forum. As a matter of fact, the same mayor and he was the only one, Peter, that got actually treated with a full course of ivermectin therapeutic during the hospital stay. And this is during the alpha variant. Um, because, frankly, he was Mr. Mayor and the p police chief and the fire chief were at his home and they were frustrated with his he wasn't progressing. And they were like, you can stay home and get oxygen, but you really need to be in the hospital. And that's when he was not my patient. Mind you, neither of these people were my patients. These were where I got phone calls in the middle of the night or late at night. And they say, Dr. Littell, we understand you know how to treat COVID. And so the obstetrician who called me frantic because this woman was sitting up in bed and had, a, you know, a, not even a day after giving birth by C-section to her baby. And he's asking in the hospital, does anyone here know how to treat COVID? You know, and thank God another OB doctor told him, hey, with his Dr. Littell and he's using this ivermectin stuff, which I couldn't give her from the hospital formulary, mind you. I had to bring it and give it to her from my own pocket or she wouldn't have gotten it. Um, and of course, you know, we can go on and on. And it wasn't always ivermectin. It was hydroxychloroquine, as you well know. But during the Delta variant, especially, we were finding out that people needed the ivermectin and the hydroxychloroquine. And so, uh, you know, those are the stories I shared at the meeting. I couldn't share but so much. I mean, the amount of time I've just told you was less than what I had at that meeting to talk about this. And then who pulled the trigger to call security and have you be removed? That is something that we're still trying to figure out. There was different, I've heard different versions. Obviously, I was just talking to the 
the board member on my knees. I had bent over quietly, was whispering, was not disruptive. Nobody in the, everyone was still watching what was the proceedings that were finishing up. I was off on the side. I've heard different versions, but clearly there was somehow a signal put out that Dr. Littell needed to be escorted from the room. And I was kind of surprised. I thought they were just going to have me sit down and I would have been happy to sit down and I would have been happy to leave the room actually after they asked me to leave, but I did not expect to be asked to get my car and leave the premises uh, of the hospital. So it's uh, it was bizarre. And uh, I thought when I went back last week, I don't even know, was it last week or this week? I went back. It's been a long week. I, I thought for sure, I guess it was just this Monday, I went back there. Wow, this was three days ago. And I drove again, the two hours down there to speak, and I really expected some sort of apology. And when I approached the chairman of the board at the end of the meeting and reached out and shake his hand, and I said to him, I said, you know, why couldn't you just you know, apologize for the manner in which you, you, you treated me? He said, Dr. Littell, you interrupted the meeting. That's what we do. And why don't you just go back to Ocala? And, you know, I was kind of like, wow. <laughs> so I'm looking at your letter from the American Board of Family Medicine, which outlines you've gone through five sets of recertifications, five sets every seven years. And I have to tell the listeners, this is rigorous. This is very, very rigorous. I've gone through a total of seven in internal medicine and cardiology, where we, we put our professional career on the line to maintain certification. And the board starts out by saying, listen, they sent you letters on January 25th and on June 9th regarding the dissemination of medical information, medical misinformation. Uh, and now on March 16th, 2023, which I think was just a few days after the Sarasota event, you get this letter. Tell our listeners about it. Yeah, absolutely. The letter was dated March 16th, not received until March 21st, mind you. But in the letter, they said, effective the time date of this letter, March 16th, I am no longer board certified as a family physician. And really talk about coming out of left field. We we um, had written letters, Jeff Childers, who I'm, I'm sure you know well, and on my behalf had written a letter last summer in response to their initial letter, which was from last January. We're talking a long time ago. And we had heard nothing back from them from last summer until this letter, he certifying me as a family physician. So you, they had all that time to think about it, you know, eight months, nine months. And then lo and behold, this video goes viral. I've got a half a million people responding to one tweet that I put out for the first time on Twitter. And I think the powers that be must have sensed, obviously, that there's this guy in Ocala, Florida, um, is uh, way too dangerous for the American Board of Family Physicians to allow to teach medical students or practice family medicine um, anymore. So they say you're decertified. And, and you know, because you're, you're specialized beyond one level, that you know, when you work hard to get these certificates, it's, it means a lot. It means a lot. And so for them to sit and just decertify you, is a, it's a low blow an incredibly low blow after everything I've done to maintain my certification and I think be an exemplary family doc for that matter for all these decades. Absolutely. Let's go through these sections in the letter. The first section is uh, they are taking issue with you describing COVID-19 vaccines as a product of genetic engineering. Uh, What's your general response to that? Yeah, exactly. What is my response? I, I I said that in very early on. You know, we were 
trying to get um, people exemptions from these vaccines. And I had heard about this uh, GINA, G-I-N-I, which has to do with genetic engineering, uh, that no American citizen should ever be forced to put a product of genetic engineering into their body. And um, that was one of the first things that I would do when I would write these medical exemptions for people who were nervous about the messenger RNA vaccines, possibly well, what the heck possibly? We know they're basically dictating to our, um, you know, our uh, in, within the nucleus of our body. They, they're, 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 they're creating um, these new proteins, which then produce our, and I'm sorry, it's been a long day for me as still the patients, but you, you have said, been very outspoken about how these do, in fact, mess with our body's ability to produce antibodies through the mechanisms of normal uh, DNA and then RNA replication, the RNA going out to the ribosomes and then producing the proteins. So this, to my way of thinking, having studied DNA at, at uh, Columbia, actually in graduate school, this is genetic engineering when you're co-opting the body's normal mechanism of creating antibodies by messing with the way DNA is translated to RNA and RNA to translate it to proteins. I think I would call that genetic engineering. You're putting fragments of messenger RNA into the human body. Now, they said it's not. Well, we can quabble over that. But for me to, be, to call that misinformation and grounds for being decertified rather than having a conversation about it, I'm sure you'd agree is beyond the pale. Sure. Well, you know, the development of messenger RNA and, the, you know, removing the natural uracil and putting in the synthetic pseudouridine, um, these are clearly genetic engineering uh, to load the genetic code for the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein into an adenoviral vector is genetic engineering. And uh, Dr. David Wiseman, in, you know, under FDA testimony, has clearly uh, indicated without disagreement that these are gene transfer technologies. So uh, you're well supported there, and they could uh, take, um, you know, they could take issue um, with this. You know, they, they state here and this is their statement of fact. So, I mean, now, now they, they didn't give you a chance to uh, respond to this. They've already made their decision, but here's their statement of fact. Their statement of fact is genetic engineering is not possible with messenger RNA vaccines as the RNA does not enter the nucleus of cells where genes are present. Oh well, in, in fact, it does. Because <laughs> Alden and colleagues have demonstrated that. Um, to claim otherwise is an assertion that is completely unmoored from basic biological knowledge. No, it's not. It's actually been shown in the lab in Malmo, Sweden. It's an arbitrary statement wait, without evidence needed to make such a claim. So, so, you're, so now they have made claims. They have made claims that are false and uh, do not reconcile with the peer-reviewed published literature. Now, next claim, number two. I want you hear. I want to hear your general response to this, regarding the COVID nineteen vaccine causing deaths in children. They take issue to this. Yes. Yes. Well, here's an interesting thing. This is the only statement that I could maybe be taken to task for, and I'm I'm, I'm open to hearing your. I use the word intentionally. I use the word demise. All right. I wrote, I said, this particular injection has led to the demise of more children in this country than were saved from being hospitalized. Now, mind you, that was in response to a question and answer session 
at a Christian academy here in Ocala that I never knew was going to go viral, right? It didn't matter. In fact, it didn't go viral until until these guys made it go viral. But the point being, when I chose that word demise, I did not use it. And I, I've looked it up in the dictionary since, and I realized everybody says this. I would not have said at that time that more children have died from the vaccine than from COVID. But at that point in time, how you define childhood deaths um, was really somewhat complicated, right? Because they'd go up to age 18 and they'd include very, very sick kids who'd had pneumonia and, and renal failure and all kinds of stuff. But that said, when I made that statement led to the demise of more children, I was adamant in my belief, and I still am, that children will be harmed more than helped by these vaccines. Okay, so let's take their ta- statement effect. Their statement effect, this is what their contention is, is that there's no evidence that pediatric myocarditis deaths attributed to COVID-19 vaccination are more numerous than prevented deaths, serious illness, or hospitalizations from COVID. The myocarditis caused by COVID-19 vaccination is mild and not associated with uh, fatalities. Well, you know, you could easily cite Tracy Hogue, UC Davis, in her analysis, more um, of young boys, uh, teenage boys, uh, would be um, hospitalized with myocarditis than would be spared a hospitalization due to COVID, and that was based on uh, data. The You could cite Melissa McCann from Australia, since this isn't limited to the United States, who clearly has um, uh, described fatal myocarditis cases in children in, the, in their DAN system, which is the same as VAERS, and their... Um, their equivalent of the CDC FDA director, Dr. Skerritt, has agreed in his letters. He said, yes, the myocarditis was fatal in these cases due to the vaccine. So you could easily cite um, her dossier. And uh, they indicate that myocarditis is mild. It's not mild (laughs) when multiple studies show the vast majority of children are hospitalized. Hospitalization, by definition, is a serious adverse event. Yeah, yeah, and and also we don't know the long-term consequences. We're so premature to jump his conclusions, right? But their statement of fact uh, is easily uh, rebutted. Third section, regarding the COVID-19 vaccine causing the rise of the Delta variant, um, they are implying that mass vaccination did not provide ecological pressure on the virus to mutate. What's your general response? This goes back to the conversations we both have had with Dr. Ryan Cole and others who, you know, were the first to point out this concept of the, uh, is it antibody detection escape, but that we were, that had we allowed the natural um, uh, immunity to take place across the country, we were, we were already seeing, we were already seeing after the alpha variant, you know, a rise in natural immunity. I, I had seen it clinically in the people who had not, of course, the vaccine wasn't out. They'd had cases which you and I both had treated, right, appropriately with the early multi-drug treatment regimen. And these were people like myself, for example, who I treated with hydroxychloroquine, um, had a robust immune response. Had we allowed that to continue, as that's what I wrote, if we had allowed natural immunity to take root in this country and not rolled out the vaccine, I don't believe, and I think you would agree, we would have seen the emergence of the Delta variant. The, it was We suppressed people's natural immune responses and I, and contributed based on other what other doctors have said. And you can add to that, Peter. I mean, you know exactly where I'm going. 
Yeah, well, their statement of fact after this, um, he's simply saying that uh, the idea that COVID-19 vaccines fostered the rise of Delta variants unfounded. SARS-CoV-2 is a member of the coronavirus uh, family of viruses, which include four other members, approximately 30% of common colds. Uh, because they continually mutate and drift, uh, generate new variants all the time uh, in the absence of vaccines targeted against them. So they pick other coronaviruses. Um, and, and uh, you know, you could easily cite Neeson and colleagues from the Mayo Clinic and then Venkata Krishnan from Boston, who both published that once we got to 25% of the population vaccinated, that we are going to actually start to force mutations. And you could easily have other experts weigh in who, you know, have that belief. You know, so, so if, if, if one doctor doesn't think that mass vaccination with the same vaccine in everybody provides ecological pressure on mutations, selection, natural selection for mutations, and uh, another one does, you know, that's a, that's a healthy scientific debate. But it's, it's not COVID misinformation, for sure. Uh, let's move on. We only have, um, uh, I think, one more section to go through, and that is professional conduct. <laughs> and uh, here I really want to hear your response to this. Um, they say that you compared U.S. public health authorities to Nazi Germany in what, what the term of lockstep. And they're quoting you, um, and they basically went through, it looks like a lot of videos. And they got you, you know, at, at, at one minute and one hour and seven minutes and 57 seconds. Tell us about this, these statements and, and how you view them now. Well, I, I took the term lockstep from a conversation that was um, really forced upon me with a chief executive officer of a local hospital when they have asked me, they were going to ask me to step down from the medical executive committee, the leadership of the hospital during a phone call that my wife and I both listened to. And I wished I could have figured out how to tape because he said to me during the course of that conversation, Dr. Littell, you know, we expect our physicians to be lockstep with us when it comes to hospital policy. And it was after that comment, and I made this in the con in in in, in this uh, this meeting at the Christian Academy again. This is where they they watched this video among among others. And the doctor who was my ally during this conversation, because it was a you know we nobody had in person meetings. If you recall, everything was done either over Zoom or over the phone. The one doctor who's a local doctor says to the CEO, "Well, it sounds an awful lot to me like you're telling Doctor Tell how he ought to practice medicine." And then you could just hear a pin drop. All right. So, you know, he knew the CEO, who's not a doctor, knew he'd overstepped. But that doesn't mean he doesn't think that way. And that's what most hospitals really believe when they own their doctors. We should be lockstep. And of course, that's what I saw on the wards in the COVID units when doctors would go up to people who are begging. And I can tell you story after story, Peter, the one patient who was begging for an alternative regimen, he was dying and ultimately did die. And the young hospitalist telling him, you have no control over this. People, I've been treating everybody with the same protocols. They either live or they die. And I'm not going to listen to any of your garbage that you're getting from your telephone or your, your, you know, your iPhone, whatever. And I was so upset with that young doctor. I said that that patient sitting in his hospital bed on BiPAP, struggling to breathe for the last two weeks, he knows more about the management of COVID than you do because you're just brainlessly following protocols and he's been doing his own research. So, you know, this is why can't I compare this to what happened in the concentration camps in Nazi Germany? I mean, why can't we question 
the, for the first time in our history as physicians, the only time you and I have ever seen medical staffs of hospitals not have a conversation about the appropriate treatment of patients, you know, a dialogue. We just, it just is astounding that this took place. Well, yeah, I think that's a really good answer. Number five, Florida Summit on COVID-2. Second one, Future of Medicine in Post-COVID America. This was on August 8th, 2022. I remember I was invited and I couldn't go. Um, but uh, quickly, they cite statements of other doctors. Yeah. Uh, Ryan Cole, yeah. Andrew, Andrew, and Angie Farella, James Thorpe, um, yeah. Paul Alexander, who's a PhD. They say other doctors and their statements. Right. And it looks like they um, hold it to you. It says American Board of Family Medicine has determined that the statements identified above uh, made and or shared on your public channels, each standing alone collectively, are not supported by the prevailing medical evidence on the standard of care for prevention, treatment of COVID-19 and vaccination, and as such represents breaches of your professional obligation. So yeah, you, yeah. They, they did the same that? thing. Well, I'll tell you, I have another. It's going to be, I, I'm, there'll be a book on this that has to be because there's so much stuff. I have another seven-page letter that they sent to me last January after the first summit in which you did participate. And there were quotes by you and there were quotes by Malone. There were quotes by everybody that presented there, Richard Urso and Peter Corey. So in other words, they held me liable for the statements made by the people who presented in my conference on the treatment of COVID. But in the history of medicine, have we ever, <laughs> could you imagine Einstein getting around a table with a bunch of nuclear physicists and discussing various theories? And then, you know, they would kick half of them out of the room, you know, because they, their, their, their uh, theories were preposterous and were misinformation. I mean, I don't, we wouldn't even have had an Albert Einstein if that was the case, right? I mean, we, we cannot abide by this in medicine that we can't have the open and free exchange of ideas even if some people are wrong and to hold me liable for the ideas that are presented in a medical conference is a pretty astounding, isn't it? Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. I have to tell you that I think one of the biggest advances in nutraceuticals and supplements is healthy cell and the healthy cell line is extensive. I typically focus on the microgel technology, three major products here, Immune Super Boost, the Focus and Recall, and then the REM Sleep Supplement. Each one of these is complementary, and they can uh, have a role, I think, in the health of your life each and every day. I know they do in my case. Many of you know, after COVID-19 twice, I spent almost the entire year in 2022 with the upper respiratory tract illness. Now, thankfully, I'm through the first two months of 2023 and I've been diligent with the Immune Super Boost in the morning, followed by Focus and Energy, and then in the evening time, the REM Sleep Supplement. The microgel technology works and boy, does it work fast. So go to our website, America Out Loud Talk Radio, find the banner bar for Healthy Cell, click on it, and that'll take you to the site to get a discount on your purchase of all Healthy Cell products. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Worried about spike protein? Dr. Peter McCullough and the Wellness Company may have a solution. Get the incredible American-made GMO-free spike formula from the Wellness Company. Go to TWC.health and use promo code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount. 
here, we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. AmericaOutloud.com, seven amazing years. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio, liberty and justice for all. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We are talking to Dr. John Littell, who's a personal friend. I think he's uh, an excellent physician. His daughter's a wonderful young physician. His family is cohesive and they're devout. I've been to his house. Uh, I've presented alongside uh, of him and, and he has a long and storied career in medicine and we are witnessing professional reprisal for this outstanding physician like we've never seen before. And, you know, I'm down to the very end of the letter and uh, this part of the letter sounded familiar to me. It says, uh, based on your public dissemination of false, inaccurate, and misleading materials about COVID-19, COVID-19 vaccination treatment and mitigation of the virus, your diplomat status and eligibility to apply for family medicine certification examination are rescinded, effective March 16th, 2023, based on the violations of the board's guidelines for professionalism, licensure, and personal conduct. And then, then they give your diplomat history saying essentially your certificate is withdrawn. Now the next paragraph says, you may request a review of this action by writing me within 20 days of receipt of this letter. A timely request to appeal will hold this action in abeyance and you will continue to be represented as board certified pending review of your case by the professionalism committee of the American Board of Family Medicine Board of Directors. So this, John, is actually exactly where I am. So I've received this very type of letter that goes through things, and now I am in the appeal process, and my appeal has been, at this point in time, my appeal date hasn't been scheduled, so it's, in a sense, in abeyance. So you are right there with me. You're still board certified, but now you're in this appeals process. And I can tell you what I did as I I, I certainly lawyered up and I have uh, two sets of approaches. One is based on um, procedural factors. You know, it, they can't um, criticize you and then give you their evidence. That's wrong. They actually have to give you their evidence first and give you a chance to respond to it, not vice versa. Um, uh, the other uh, procedural things that you'll find is in their charter for the American Board of Family Medicine, there'll be all kinds of virtuous statements like, like there should be uh, scientific interchange and on the best behalf of the patient and you should not be um, influenced by conflict of interest with big pharma or, or other factors. And so you'll see all this. And then in my letter, I, I, I have a second part, which is all the substantive things where we simply rebutted what was uh, the new evidence put forward by the board. Um, you know, I think for you and me, things do look um, grim right now. I know it's uh, shocking and awful uh, to go through this, but, um, you know, you're at the next step of requesting an appeal. Yeah, I am. And I, I, I almost 
kind of half wonder if the young lady who put her name on this, and I won't mention it because she might be a nice person in general, but, you know, I think she, they, there's a gross miscalculation in how this was put together. Because I've read the letter that you were kind enough to share with me. I'm not sure they actually withdrew your certificate on the date of a letter. And that's what really puzzled me. As I read this letter, and to be honest with you, until you brought it, I haven't had a chance to read. I just got the letter in my possession today, the actual letter. It was sent to Jeff Childers, and I've, I've seen it, you know, online. But but this this is the first time, as we're reading it tonight, so thank you for inviting me tonight, where I'm reading that once they get the arrest request to appeal, it says here, you will continue to be represented as board certified pending review. So it's puzzling to me that they would say that your certificate was withdrawn as of March 16th. I get the letter on March 21st. So as you're reading that letter, how can you think otherwise? I am no longer board certified, right? Sure, That's sure. It's, it it's the most severe thing. They're basically saying we're stripping you of uh, the three years of your residency, um, all your professional work gone in through five sets of recertification, which is a, which is yeah. a, astounding. You know, you're you're like me. You're in the twilight of your career, so you, yeah. you're the most board certified family doctor out there. And um, but then they give you this uh, appeal. Uh, one of the things that that I did is uh, I, I demanded to find out who's going to be on this uh, a board of directors. Professionalism, yeah, the committee, who's yeah, professionalism the committee. committee. Yeah, who's who's on the professionalism yeah. committee? Yeah. That's so a very you, good question. You have a right to know. So I demanded who's on the committee. I got their names. I made a table of them, and I said, "How many publications do they have in COVID nineteen?" How many public statements have they ever made in COVID-19? How many conferences have they chaired? How much uh, various forms of congressional or Senate testimony have they done? Do they have any qualifications to opine on you as a COVID expert? And as uh, you would infer, none of the people on my committee were even qualified to review me. Um, the, the second thing that I did is uh, I uh, took every single one of the people involved with my case and I called them for witnesses in my planned appeal. I said, I want my attorney to question them. And I want to know about their connections to Pfizer and Moderna through Weber Shandwick, the marketing firm that's working with the boards. Uh, I want to know their relationship to... Um, the uh, Biden uh, HHS COVID Community Core funding, and did the American Board of Family Medicine take federal dollars to push these vaccines? Um, freedom of information uh, requests about uh, was the board colluding with the CDC, FBI, and others to track you through social media and your conferences? Uh, and uh, you know, we let them know that every single person we're going to turn the tables on them. And we're going to examine them. We're going to call them as witnesses. You know, this is why you're Peter McCullough, because you've just done me so much good with this analysis. And I know you can't be with me, be with me in Atlanta. I'm actually getting up at like four in the morning to go for a one day trip on Saturday to be with a bunch of legal people such as Jeff Childers and, and a group of docs as well, like Ryan Cole. And we're going to it's a legal conference on COVID. So this is going to be front and center. But everything you've said makes so doggone much sense. And I and, uh, you know, I can't thank you enough. You know, Peter, your, your listeners should know um, and you don't you don't trump your own. You don't touch your own accomplishments, I'm sure. But you were the one who really brought people together across this country. When I got a phone call. Uh, I don't know, in the fall of uh, 
I don't know, 20, whatever year it was. And someone said, would you join this group that's headed by Peter McCullough? It was like, uh, you know, uh, you know, Santa Claus and Easter Bunny rolled up together. I mean, it was amazing. It was a great treat for me to be able to participate because I was laboring kind of in obscurity here in, in North Central Florida. And now all of a sudden I could get into a dialogue with other docs smart docs and it was this like manna from heaven i guess that's a better analogy it was manna from heaven we all i as you remember those early days peter i mean on those zoom calls we we could we were chomping at the bit to get on those calls and exchange ideas and which is why i think both you and i were so disheartened when most of our colleagues in medicine uh really just kind of tuned us out and didn't want to have a conversation so yeah i can't thank you enough for your guidance your wisdom and support during these last three years. I don't know what I've been with, where I've been without you, my friend. Well, thank you so much for those kind words and right back at you. You know, I learned uh, in our preliminary phone conversation that the stakes are high for you in terms of uh, being fully decertified. You mentioned uh, special leadership with, um, uh, you know, an insurance plan and your office, your daughter who's in your practice. Uh, Can you tell our listeners about that? Yeah, I did some research after our phone call this afternoon, and I I was very concerned that the insurance companies would come after me. It turns out that we have contracts in place that are that do not, thank goodness, at least current ones, um, rely on board certification and continue reimbursement. Had I been a younger doctor right out of training trying to get these contracts, it would have been a whole nother matter. All right. A whole nother matter. The fact that I've been a seasoned veteran with these with the various payers, you know, Cigna, Aetna, Humana, United, um, you know, they go based on my track record with quality uh, and cost effectiveness. So so I'm, what, which is why we need to continue to fight this fight. You know, I'm going to fight this legal battle, as will you, not so much really for ourselves, because you and I could find another way to continue to be docs, right? There's there's options out there, but it's the young doctors like my daughter coming out who needs to get insurance contracts, needs to keep her credentials with hospitals if she wants to, because hospitals require board certification to take care of patients, you know, um, or to teach medical students. Those are the three big things that I've looked at. And um, uh, so I, uh, I am looking at an alternative agency that you're familiar with to get board certified through them, um, which I think is going to hopefully stem. Honestly, one of the best things that might come out of this might be a mass exodus from the American Board of Family Medicine and from these other corrupt boards of medicine and the surgical boards. You know, there's I read I read up today. There's almost one million doctors certified by these boards across the country. Over 100,000 are family physicians. And um, when you think about the power that they have to destroy based, as we've read in this letter, that they can destroy a reputation or a career. um, I think it's time to look for alternative ways of certifying doctors. This is stunning. Can you give our listeners an estimate? How many hours do you estimate you spent on this professional hours with letters, response letters, attorneys, um, all these interactions? You know, then you get me going. I mean, I don't ever stop with something, but um, 
No, the, the conversations are all at 10 o'clock at night or on weekends when I can push them out. But, you know, I'd say well over 100 hours over the last three years. I have a stack of papers, and we're not just talking about the American Board of Family Medicine here. I have letters from the Florida State Board of Medical Examiners because of complaints against me because of my prescribing ivermectin. I have the hospital meetings I had to go to. The one hospital, which I didn't even share this story with you, that required me to go for psychological counseling to maintain my privileges. Um, you know, and going to board meetings and medical executive. I mean, it's incredible stuff, Peter. It's been a kind of a nightmare. And I just kind of roll with the punches because I'm an old army guy and that's what you do. But um, and I have a great wife who you've met. <laughs> she, you know, without a supportive wife and family, you couldn't get through this stuff. I, I sure as heck. And a great faith, an incredible faith that God's really in charge of all of this nonsense. Right. The world is not about the world is what it is. But we have to live with an otherworldly perspective or we'll never make it. And do you attribute your faith uh, as your bedrock that's really carrying you through all this? It has always been there. It has always been. I mean, since I was a kid. I've had a love affair with, with, with I, I honestly have, with, with, with Christ and the church since I was a kid. I, I can't even explain it. Even my, my mother said she had to turn around and drag me out of church. I just... I, I've always known that he, he speaks to us um, in a very special and unique way. And um, through our, our, our spouses and our family members and friends like you. And, um, and we have to always remain open to his voice because once we shut him out and we listen to all the other distracting voices out there, um, it can be a rough, a rough uh, road to hoe there. And so I, I have, these are, these are just, all this other stuff has been distractions, Peter. It's, it's just worldly distraction. We're about, you and I are about the vocation of medicine. It's a, it's a calling, it's a calling. And that's why I, I know I struck, I, I knew you'd be a good friend from the moment I met you. And, um, and again, I can't say enough about the, how much it means to have your support. Well, John, we're going to have to leave it there. I agree. I, I think we're in a battle that's much bigger than the American board or pharmaceutical companies or vaccines. It it seems like we're in an epic battle for all time of mankind in the world. And uh, the the spiritual nature of this, the, the pitting of good versus evil, um, compassion versus cold-heartedness, um, happiness and joy versus sadness and, and disability and, and death is extraordinary. We're watching it really play out in, in front of us um, as we navigate. And it, it, it was quick in the last three years. I want to sincerely thank you, John, for joining us on the McCullough Report. It's been a terrific interview. We will want to get follow-up and maybe you and I will find out together what this next appeal step is if it happens. Um, but you've got to get your stuff in on time to do that. They gave you a short timeline and, uh, I'm certainly in your court. Good luck tomorrow at the meeting in Atlanta. I am off to a meeting in North Carolina, uh, an event with Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, who's a great man and he's on our side of medical freedom. Dr. John Littell, thank you for joining us on the McCullough Report. Uh, you're welcome. God bless you, Peter and your audience. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.